Yeah. Amen. All right, well, take your Bibles and go to Hebrews chapter number 12 tonight. Hebrews chapter number 12. I have some thoughts the Lord gave me this morning and later on this afternoon, and <clears throat> hopefully it's a help. That's the, that is the overall goal here. Because <laughs> that's why we come to church, right? You come to church and it's not just so that you become a better you or you, uh, you know, can be a better father or, you know, have some success in this world. It's, it's first and foremost about Jesus Christ. And if anything that's accomplished in church draws you closer to Jesus Christ, you'll be the better for it. And uh, sometimes those things are easy to take. Sometimes they're hard to take. And sometimes um, you have to sit back for a while. And sometimes you can't even grasp what's coming out. You ever think about that? It's like Dr. Ruppman told us when we were in school. Dr. Ruppman always said it, and uh, Pastor, he just said it the other day, too. And that's just a simple fact that there's people at all different stages of their Christian life in this room right now. And not everything that comes out of the pulpit you're going to be able to grasp and apply at any given time. But that's the wonders of spirit-filled preaching. That's the wonders of preaching from a book that's alive, is that the Lord will give you exactly what you need, and you don't have to worry about what somebody else gets. You just get what God wants you to have. So in uh, Hebrews chapter number 12, I'm going to try to navigate a subject tonight that for me is difficult because it's personal. And uh, we'll start in verse number 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person, as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited a blessing, or the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Heavenly Father, again, we want to thank you for allowing us to be in church here tonight. Lord, it's a privilege, it's an honor to be in church, let alone be behind a pulpit. And so tonight we ask, God, that you would please uh, help. As we open up the Bible, Father, I pray that your spirit would come forth. Lord, I, I know that, Lord, without you here tonight, that nothing will be accomplished. Nothing uh, will be said in a way that will help anyone, Father. So I pray that you'd hide me in the, behind the, the cross and wash me in the blood of Jesus Christ. And help us, Lord, as we try to navigate these things I believe you've laid on my heart. And Father, I pray that uh, you'd bless our church and all the people that came out here. Undoubtedly, they came to hear from you. And so, Father, I pray that you'd give them just that. Father, I pray you give them just a peg that they can hang their hat on when they go home. Something, Lord, that gets something that'll help them just a little bit further in these last days in which we're living in, Lord. And we just thank you for the opportunity. We thank you for putting us in this world and the time that you have, Father, because you do everything right and you do everything for a purpose and you do everything for a reason. And so we'll trust you now in this time, and we ask that you bless it and get your glory out of it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> now, there's no shortage of preaching on, uh, you know, different sins in the Bible. And I'm for preaching on sin. I think preaching on sin is something that uh, is still important. I believe that, I mean, I came, I came from a... Uh, 
uh, background. I should say I came from a background. I was involved in a background when I was younger uh, of the mentality of is we don't want to preach against sin. We don't want to preach against hell, uh, preach on hell because we don't believe in scaring people into salvation. And uh, it was that statement that was made to me as a young as a young boy, really, at the age of uh, 17, that made me want to pack my bags and learn the Bible because I was like, these Fruit Loops can't be letting out on loose, man. <laughs> these people are crazy. And uh, that's the ultimate uh, thing that I heard that resonated with me that said, you know what, I need to figure out what the Bible says and, and I need to be able to preach this thing because if that's all that preachers are, then surely I can do better than that. <laughs> it was very prideful, very arrogant. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, the Lord, he has a, a special way of humbling you, no, no, no doubt. But the fact of the matter, what I'm trying to say tonight is that the surface level things, do you understand that that's like the easiest level of observation? Right? Anybody in here that has a heartbeat could get up here behind a pulpit, right? Listen, I'm not saying that you should, but I'm just saying that you could get behind a pulpit and point out things in people's lives that you can see that are wrong. Preaching on outward sin is not difficult. It's easy to do, especially because you've got a Bible that it is. I mean, it's like it's like the easiest layer of interpretation. You understand? But you have to understand that although that preaching is important, we live in a day and age now. Where I'm looking at a congregation to see if people with suit and ties and things seem to be buttoned up on the outside. And for the most part, for what I know. And what I have observed, that from the, the majority, I'm not saying that there's none, but I'm saying that the majority of the problems and struggles you have here tonight, I cannot see. And no preacher can see. There are things that you are struggling with tonight that I could list everything that I think is bad, and you, it'd be like a spiritual game of dodgeball. And I would just chuck one and you'd be like, no. And you'd duck out of the way, you'd dive, and you'd do this, and then you'd throw it back. And we'd just be playing dodgeball all night until we fall over and we're out of breath. Right? Until somebody can make you feel bad enough to put you on an altar. But you want to know what I know about sins of the flesh? They're important to preach on. But as you get older in different stages of your life, they change. An older man's struggles in his flesh are not the same as the young people's struggles in their flesh. So if you think you can just preach a blanket statement, it doesn't hit everybody the same way. I had a preacher uh, have me come and preach a meeting one time, and he said, you know, we're going to have some other guys there. You know, you're going to be the main speaker, and we're going to have some other guys. Pray. I'm like, I don't care. Go do whatever you want. And so I go there and preach this, uh, at this church, 20, 25 people. I mean, most of these folks, you'd have to hold a, a mirror in front of their you know, face to make sure they're still breathing. You know what I'm saying? But I, I enjoyed it. It was a blessing, you know. <laughs> and uh, we get there, and uh, it's a, I forget uh, how they had the, the service structured. It was a while ago. And uh, these, guys, these other guys get up, and they start preaching. I mean, it's kind of like preaching at a nursing home, right? And these guys are preaching on everything they can think of. And I mean, they're preaching on taking your kids to ball games and they're preaching on going to the movies. And they're, I'm like, these people, they are not doing all this stuff. I'm like, what are you doing? And these people are just like, just taking it. They're like, and, the stuff, and God sees the stuff you look up on the internet. I'm like, they don't even know how to get on the internet. <laughs> Who are you preaching to? <laughs> right? But I know something. 
that no matter how old you are, and no matter where you're at in your Christian life, you struggle with the same exact way. He mentioned it here in the, in the passage. He says that you need to look out for some things. I like Hebrews chapter 12. I like the first part of Hebrews chapter 12 when he talks about in verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. I love that. You know what? That's something that you should look unto. But there's one other thing in this passage that he tells you you need to look to other than Jesus Christ. Only one. And that's found in verse number 15. It says, looking diligently. What is he saying here? He's saying you need to look out for something diligently. He told you you need to look unto Jesus, right? But then he says you need to diligently look. Lest any man fail in the grace of God. And he says, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You see, the church we live in today, we've become very knowledgeable of what is required of us on the exterior. But sometimes we neglect the things that actually eat us up inside. And cause true division between us and our Savior. And cause us to not have a close fellowship that was preached about today. And I'll tell you, uh, you I've, I've, I've watched people die of cancer. Anybody in here ever watched somebody die of cancer? I've watched somebody die of cancer. I've watched a few. It's horrible. I had a buddy went to school with. His dad died of cancer. I remember, man, he just, he was a worker, man. He, he, he drove 45 minutes one way to bring uh, his kids to church. It was uh, up in Dr., uh, down Dr. Upman's church, and he was faithful to do that thing, and he got real, real bad cancer. And I remember when we were probably first or second year students, man, his dad was in hospice, and they brought everybody in. And, and uh, I mean, he had cancer so bad, the tumors had gotten so big, they were breaking his bones, and his bones were pushing out of his skin. And he died in agony. Horrible. He, he refused the pain medication. He didn't want it. And, uh, and, and that's how he chose to go. And you know what? I've, I've, listened, listen, I've listened to people that have, have had to bury folks that have died of cancer and, and that kind of thing. And you know what I've heard them say? I hate cancer. They say, I hate it. It's something that gets inside of you and just eats you away from the inside little by little. And it's literally your body just killing itself. Can I say that's exactly how bitterness is? You know, it's not an accident that in Ephesians he tells us that we should put away bitterness and malice, or excuse me, bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speakings. He says you should put them away with all malice. You should hate those things when they pop up in your life. They'll kill you. They'll kill you faster than a cigarette. Bitterness will kill you faster than alcohol. You see, we can sit in church and we can say, I don't do this and I don't do this and I don't go here. And you could list out the, the, the accomplishments of your consecration until you're blue in the face. And you could die tomorrow full of bitterness and envy and strife. Listen, there was uh, two monks one time. They were walking down. A, they were walking in between, you know, harvest or something like that. And they were going to another town to help with the harvest. And <clears throat> as they were walking between the two towns, they came to a river. 
And there was this woman there, and she was all distraught, and she was, you know, angry and whatnot. And they stopped, and they said, hey, ma'am, what, what's wrong? And she says, there's no bridge here, and I just can't get across this river by myself. And these two monks, of course, they said, well, we'll, we'll gladly help you, ma'am, and we'll, we'll pick you up, and we'll carry you across this river. And so that's exactly what they do. These two monks, they grab this lady and they put her uh, on their shoulders and they, they walk across this river as they fight the current and they finally get to the other side and they place her gently down and they send her on her way. And she says, thank you so much. I appreciate it so much. And, and, they, and then of course, they, they, had, they uh, you know, exchanged pleasantries and, and they departed in separate directions. And they get about a mile down the road and the one monk looks over to the other guy and he says, look at my clothes. And my back, man, I don't know what that lady was eating, but my goodness, my back is just, it must have tore something, and it is horrible. I can barely walk, and I can't believe we did that, and we should have never did that, and I'm, now I'm filthy, and I'm wet. And the other guy was just quiet. And they walk a couple more miles down the trail, and this other guy, by this time, he's on the ground, and he's rolling around in pain and agony. Why did we pick up that woman? I can't believe we did that. Now I'm in so much pain. I did all that, and now look at how I'm at. And the monk, kind of sick and tired of hearing his whining and complaining, looked over at him, and he said, You see, the difference between me and you is I put that lady down three miles ago, and you're still carrying her around. And that's what we do sometimes with bitterness in our lives. Sometimes it's those things that we just cannot seem to let go. It's those things that stay with us. And no matter how much we paint up the outside and paint the, uh, the smile on our faces, it's the thing, it's that canker worm, it's that wormwood that just destroys us from within. It's bitterness. And you know, this passage, it has a lot to show us about this. It's not just a topographical message. For all of the Bible students in here, I just want to go ahead and, and preface this. I know where I'm at doctrinally. <laughs> okay? I know where I'm at dispensationally. I don't need anybody to tell me where, where you know, you can't preach about this here because after all, this is a transitional book, Brother Joe. And uh, this is actually written to the uh, nation scattered abroad in the tribulation. And okay, blow it out your nose. You can get practical and spiritual application for what I'm about to tell you tonight. And if you're too smart to get it, that'll be at your detriment, not mine. <laughs> right? I don't say that to be mean unnecessarily, but... Sometimes we get so technical that we lose the practical. And that will be the enemy of your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be exactly what Brother Chris preached this morning. And actually, uh, Brother Spurgeon did the same thing. And so this passage, it tells us a couple places. It shows us some places in our lives where we need to be cautious, where bitterness can spring up. It's like, it's, 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 uh, notice how he says that you need to look for it diligently. It's not something that you look once and you say, ah, it's not there, don't have it, and you just go about your business. Bitterness is something that you have to diligently look for. It can creep up in different places. It can pop up at different times and different situations that maybe you weren't bitter with yesterday. Maybe something, there's a moment of weakness or some kind of, you know, perfect atmospheric change in your life, and all of a sudden that thing pops up and you better recognize it quickly. You know, you, can, you need to be cautious because bitterness, it can pop up in your fight against sin. He tells us that in the first, uh, he tells us that in the first four verses of the, uh, of the chapter. He talks about, wherefore seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. 
He tells us to run with patience the race that is set before us. He tells us to look unto Jesus. And then he tells us in verse 3 to consider Him, Jesus Christ, who endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, that the God of the universe submitted Himself to sinful man and allowed them to do to Him what He did, what they did to Him. And then he reminds you in a very direct way in verse number 4, he says, you've not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. Amen. And listen, I understand what it's like to fight the flesh, and I believe everybody in here does the same. Anybody in here identify a weakness or a fault in your life or your character, something that you struggle with and maybe you've struggled with for years, and the only reason you struggle with that thing is because it was introduced to you by somebody in your past? And you say, why in the world do I struggle? If so-and-so would have never done this, if this would have never happened, I would never struggle with this thing. And so you go, why in the world did you allow this to happen? And you place that thing on somebody else, and you walk around in the gall of bitterness. And you fight it, and you fight it, and you fight it, and, you, and the Bible talks about the besetting sin. Listen, we all have besetting sins. Amen. You say, what's yours? None of your business. Amen, brother. <laughs> None of your business. And the folks that say you need an accountability partner so that you can spread your goobly gawk to everybody else, they're a bunch of fools. Keep it to yourself. I don't want to know what you struggle with. Stay in the closet. Just stay in there. Don't come out. Listen, sometimes in our fight against sin, we can become so frustrated that we get bitter at our own shortcomings. We get bitter at our own condition. And the Bible says you need to look unto Jesus Christ. You want to know why He told you to look unto Jesus Christ? To consider Him? Lest you be weary. He knows that you're going to get weary if all you do is focus on your sin all the time. You ever think that maybe the reason, you, the reason that you fall into sin all the time, you say you fall into sin, is because you're always looking at it? Because you're fixated on it? Right? And it's that thing that you just have to obsess over because that's the thing that you think is the most important thing in your life is you conquering your sin. Did you realize that the closer you get to Jesus, some of those things just typically go away? Amen. One of the things we've talked about at youth camp last year was that, is that separation does not produce elevation. It's the antithesis of that. As you elevate and get closer to him, you naturally become more separated from the things in this world. So the more you seek to get closer to God by focusing on your sin, the more bitter you will become at yourself. And you have Christians that walk around and they just loathe themselves. And I'm so dirty and I'm so wicked and I just can't. You're focusing on the wrong thing. And that's a root of bitterness that will hinder you from growing and it will hurt you worse than the sin that you're fighting. Does that make sense? So the fight against sin also... How about this? The failure of chastisement tells us that in the next portion of the chapter, doesn't it? Talks about how the Lord, it says He's going he's to chasten every son and whom He receiveth. Anybody in here like to get chastened when you were a kid? I have never disciplined one of my kids and they were like, man, Dad, thanks. <laughs> I really appreciate that. <laughs> I can see the good. <laughs> I deserve this, Dad. That's never happened, ever, <laughs> right? But you want to know something? It's a part of being a Christian. Yeah. It's a part of, yeah, you're trying to learn and you're going to make mistakes and you're going to falter, you're going to fail, you're going to slip up, you're going to make wrong decisions. 
And you have the privilege and you have the, you have the liberty to fail. I've given this illustration before, but I remember when I was in the sheriff's department and I was a, a corrections officer, and I remember my first day on the job, you didn't even get a uniform yet. You had to be there for a month before they even gave you a uniform because they didn't think you'd last that long. And I walked into a control room with my FTO, and he, and he uh, you know, we're on the second floor, so it's all the, uh, the max security guys, the guys that are waiting trial, they're going to prison and everything else. These are the bad, these are rough dudes, right? And there's a bajillion little flippy switches in there. And as we get into that control room, he begins to tell me and one other trainee that's with us, he says, now listen, now that each one of these things, they have a, they have a note on them, and we have documentation of each cell uh, that is locked down because there's disciplinary lockdown, there's, uh, there's uh, protectionary lockdown, th- those kinds of things, people that can't be mingling with other people. And he says, if you hit the wrong button, somebody can die. And you're like... See ya. <laughs> right? I don't want nothing to do with that. <laughs> and I remember he did it on purpose. He had been an FTO for 18 years. And so you know what he did? He told you the severity of the situation in which you were in. But then as he just kind of let you stew in that truth for just a second and you got the gravity of what it is you were doing. You know what he said? He says, but there's not a mistake that you can make in this control room that I can't fix. And it was like, okay. It was like, I'm giving you permission to try, and I'm giving you permission to fail. And guess what? When you fail, you're still going to get yelled at. But I can fix it. And by me fixing your mistakes, you know what you're going to figure out? You're going to figure out how to fix it too. And the more you fall and the more you fail... It gets frustrating. You know, he that being often reproved, what does the Bible say? Can harden his neck. You know, we have to be cognizant of that as parents. You know that, right? We have to be cognizant that we're not so rigid in one way or the other. You can't be so loose that they never see that there's any standard or expectation for them. But yet, on the other side, you can't be so hard that they don't think that there's a life for them in this world at all. See, I... I've dealt with teenagers for a little while now. And I've watched both sides of the coin. And I've watched the fruit of both sides of the coin. And you want to know something? The key to the Christian life is balance. The key to the Christian life is balance. And parenting's hard. And being a good father and a good mother is difficult. And you have to be careful because you can be too hard sometimes or you can be too loose sometimes. And you have to learn how to walk with God. As pastor's been preaching about, about being led of the spirit. You have to be able to be led of the spirit between you and God in order to lead your family and your, and your kids in the right direction. You know what that Bible tells us in that passage right there? That, and right there he says that you have fathers of the flesh that, that uh, chastened you for a time. And he says, he says for their benefit. Because <laughs> they didn't want you to make them look like a fool. That's why I discipline my kids. I don't want you people to think bad of me. <laughs> I don't want to be that guy in the grocery store with the kids screaming and going crazy. And it was like, oh, look at that idiot over there. They shouldn't even give kids to somebody like that. It's embarrassing. You know what you do? You discipline your kids so you look good. It's a selfish reason. <laughs> no, no, you're self-righteous. Come on. <laughs> but you know what he tells you right after that? He says, but the Lord chastens you for your profit. You have to remember that. 
And you have to endure it. Because if you don't, you're going to get, you're going to realize this didn't work out. And I thought this was what I was supposed to do, and it didn't work out. And then you have to be, and then you have to learn how to be careful about, well, God told me to do this. Well, how do you know that? And maybe you stop blaming God for as much stuff as you do. Because you tried it and you said, God told me to do this, and then it failed. And then, well, God told me to do this, and then it failed. And you're like, well, what in the world? How? Maybe you're not discerning it right way. And maybe you're just falling and you're failing and you're falling and you're failing. And if you're not careful, you can become bitter as you look at your failure and the chastisement of the Lord throughout your life. Sometimes we're too quick to say it's God chastening us. I remember when everything went over uh, with uh, me and my family over in Indiana. I had some friends that I went to school with, and I call them friends lightly. They called me on the phone and they said, Well, brother, it's just the chastening of the Lord. <laughs> Amen, brother. Boom. <laughs> right? It's not always the chastening of the Lord, but guess what? There's going to be times where you're going to, and the Lord's going to let you know, hey, that was a misstep. Shouldn't have done that. That was a bad decision. You know what? doesn't mean your life is over. It doesn't mean, well, I tried serving God, but it didn't work out. Well, it sounds like some bitterness to me. Well, I, I tried to do this, and, and the pastor said, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Well, maybe that's not something that you should have done, and maybe the Lord, you thought the Lord was in it, but uh, it wasn't within the confounds of what uh, the Lord had in the church, and what pastor said it was okay. Well, that's all right then. You see? So you do something else. You don't say, oh, well, tried once. And you know how many times I've heard people that aren't in church anymore say, yeah, I used to do that. Didn't work out. Used to be a preacher. Used to be a missionary. You know, I used to go pass out tracts. I used to do this. And why'd you stop? Well, it never worked out. And what do you mean? You mean you never got paid for it? Come on. Oh, Lord, help us. Not in the passage, but it's worth bringing out. You know what? You can get bitterness when you see the faithfulness of other people. Simon the sorcerer back in Acts chapter 8, you know what happens? He was some great guy, man. He was just deceiving people, and he was just giving them this fluff and fluff and fluff. He was like a Joel Osteen preacher, you know? And he was just kind of like telling them, hey, live your best life now, and, you know, let's just, uh, just have, a, have a time and that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden, some real preachers came around. And all of a sudden, they start preaching something that had some power. And people's hearts started changing. People started getting saved. Folks getting baptized. And he's seeing, and he's seeing the conversion. And the Bible even says that he himself believed. And then he gets around Philip for just a little while. And he starts seeing the apostles preaching. And he starts seeing him lay on hands. And the Lord's moving with these guys. And he's thinking to himself, that's exactly what I want. I want to be in the limelight. I want God to use me. I want the power of God. But he didn't want to invest the time in it. And he says, hey, why don't I just get up next to one of you preachers and can I just hang out with you for a while? I'll even pay you. And uh, you just tell me how to do what you're doing so I can do it too, right? And you know what they identified it as? I perceive that thou were in the gall of bitterness. Why in the world would you say he's in bitterness? You mean when you see somebody that God's using and you wish God used you that way? And you realize that you're not really happy that God's using them because you, you, you just knew God could use you the same way. Well, how in the world could God be using them? God should be using me. 
I was at a meeting one time, <laughs> and uh, it was one of these meetings where they called him from the floor. You know, the, the preacher gets up there, and he has this, like, crystal ball, and he's like, the Lord is telling me that you should preach. And you're, like, just waiting to get the zap. I'm like, oh, that was the Lord, you know. I'm making fun of that for a reason. <laughs> yeah. Any of you guys that have been around, you know exactly what I'm talking about. These guys are like, oh, I think the Lord's telling me you. Oh, oh wait, no, 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 you're a woman. Uh, you, you should preach. You know, and uh, I'm sitting on the front row and I'm like, I got my message, you know, and I'm like, that's why I'm here. <laughs> I don't know when you're going to tell him, Lord, but that's why I'm here. That's why you brought me here. I'm going to preach this thing and save me for last because I'm bringing the house down. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And of course, one by one. This is an old timey meeting too, man. They had sawdust on, they had the sawdust trail down the center aisle. It was in a tent, it was outdoors. There's June bugs this big that just take your whole head off and stuff like that. It was one of them crazy meetings, horrible, miserably hot, middle of Florida. It's a horrible meeting. Anyways, <coughs> I was there to bring revival to whatever we, where we were at. <laughs> and uh, I'm sitting there, I'm like a second year Bible school student and I have got the Hail Mary pass for the Lord. No pun intended or anything like that. And I'm sitting there, and like, he said, we're going to have four preachers tonight. I was like, good, I'm number four. And he picked this guy, and he picked this guy, and it's the last guy, and I'm thinking, I'm like getting my notes ready. I'm like, I'm getting my Bible ready. I'm like, I'm going to get my suit all done up, you know. And he points at this like 90-year-old guy at the end of my pew. So like it looked like he was pointing at me, but he was actually pointing to the guy down the pew from me. And so for a minute, I was like, I knew it, Lord. And he was like, all right. And this guy like gets up in like a walker. And I'm thinking, something bad has happened, Lord. He's not discerning the spirit properly. Right? And all of a sudden, this guy gets up there and and you're sitting there. And you know, I didn't get nothing out of that sermon. You want to know why? I thought I should have been up there. You ever been like that? God calls somebody to do something or somebody, God equips somebody to do something. Somebody does something better than you. Preaches better than you. Witnesses better than you. Can teach a Bible better than you. And all of a sudden, you're not happy for them. You're like, wow. Well, yeah, because, and then you figure out why it is God's using them the way he's using them. <laughs> Because like, you have to somehow supersede them in the fact that you know why. No, the problem is you're bitter. And you can be bitter when you see the faithfulness of other people. You ever realize that maybe if you stuck around and did the same thing that they were doing, that maybe God used you in the same way, but he can see the fact that he can't use you because you're bitter? That's not just for young people. That's for everybody. That's for everybody. You know, it's funny because it doesn't just tell us to be cautious of where bitterness can pop up. You know, it shows us the characteristics of bitterness. It's funny because he gives us an illustration here in verse uh, number 16. He says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau. And we know that when the Bible says like or as, he's trying to show you a picture of something. He's giving you an example of something. And of course, he's talking about Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. 
And we know what happened. He was out there. He was famished. And he comes in kind of sliding under the radar. And, and here's his brother, uh, Jacob. And he's got this pottage, this, this bowl of lentils, if you will, this chili. And he says, I need, a, I need something to eat. And he says, hey, how about your birthright? I'll give you a bowl. And he says, all right, what's his birthright? What's, what good is his birthright to me anyways? And he gives it, right? And he says, I'm going to get a blessing anyways. I'm the oldest. If I give him the birthright. He knew that he was going to get an inheritance anyway. And so, you know, that's in, that's in chapter 25 of Genesis. Chapter 27, you know the story. Jacob's mom where he got his cunningness from, <laughs> says, hey, why don't you go ahead and put some goat skin on your arms and go ahead and we're going to deceive your father, Isaac, so that you get pronounced the inheritance. And so as the, as the story is, is told in uh, chapter 27, Esau is sent out to the field to get his venison and make some, some meat for his dad and how he how liked it. And, and while he's out there, doing what he does best, Jacob comes in, and unbeknownst to Isaac, whose eyes are dim, Jacob steals away the inheritance and the birthright. And the Bible says here that, uh, verse 17, For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Who rejected him? It wasn't Isaac. It wasn't Isaac. Isaac wanted to give Esau the blessing. You say, why is he giving Esau as an illustration of bitterness? You want to know why Esau is bitter? You want to know why he didn't just lose his birthright, but he also lost the blessing? Because you don't want to know what bitterness looks like when you fail to see the wrong that you did in the situation that you're in. Because you know what Esau didn't do? Esau, after he was beguiled by his brother, never said, you know what, I should have never gave up that birthright for, a bowl, for just a bowl of chili. Amen. That was my bad. I shouldn't have done that. But you know what he did instead? He didn't see the wrong he did. He fixated in on the wrong that was done to him. And he didn't see his culpability in the matter. And so what he did was he said, that brother of mine, that stinking brother of mine, well, you know what? I'll get him. You wait. He thinks he's smarter than me, huh? He thinks he's smarter than me. I know that, God, that, that, that God's going to give me the blessing. You see, he may have got the birthright. I'm going to get the blessing. You wait and see. And God says, I don't see any place for repentance. I don't see uh, anything. He didn't say he's sorry. And so you know what the Lord allowed? The Lord allowed Isaac to be deceived by Jacob. And God rejected Esau because his heart was unrepentant towards his sin. Because he was fixated on how somebody did him wrong and he never owned up to the fact that he did wrong too. Does that sound familiar to anybody? 
Aren't we really good at fixating on how somebody did us wrong? And they said this to me, and they had no business. They didn't know what was going on in my life. They told me I should do this, and they had no idea what was actually going on. They came in half-cocked with no information, and they just let me have it. And why in the world should they get away with it, but I'm going to get punished for it? See how that looks? What is that? Bitterness. Bitterness. Characteristics of bitterness. You know what the problem is? We were talking about this uh, yesterday at the Holbrooks, uh, Pastor, myself, and uh, Brother Dave. He was talking about that uh, guy he was witnessing to uh, very gingerly in the intersection while he was street preaching. And he said he had a big tattoo of Satan on his forearm and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, you've met those people too, you know. Those people that are like excessively wicked, like they're trying to prove something. And then you know what you find out? A lot of them have a religious background in church somewhere down the road. Because you want to know what bitterness looks like after the root has taken seat and starts to draw nutrient from the ground and starts to suck away nutrient from your Christian life? You start to see that wickedness looks a little bit different when it's fueled by bitterness rather than when it's fueled by ignorance. You see, the lost world that doesn't know any better, they're just doing it because they don't know anything better to do. But somebody who's got something to prove, somebody who's been burnt by the church and they were raised a certain way and my parents made me do this and I can't believe they did that and, and uh, the church, they really hurt me or this preacher ran off with so-and-so and, you know, this person did me wrong and, and you know what, they got something to prove. And so their wickedness is fueled by bitterness and it's far worse than that which is fueled by ignorance. You ever think it's peculiar that when Paul gives the list of the works of the flesh, and he gives it several times in his writings in Romans chapter 1 and Galatians chapter 5, over there in was it 2, Corinthians cha- or 2 Timothy chapter 3 and a couple other places, he gives those things. He doesn't list bitterness in those things. You ever think about that? He's talking to saved people in Galatians chapter 5. Why doesn't he list bitterness? You want to know why? Because bitterness is the catalyst for those things. For a Christian. How come you see Christians out there today, they don't go to church, they don't want nothing to do with God, they're mad at everybody, they're mad at the world, they're mad at their parents, they're mad at their preacher, they're mad at the church. Why? Why are they out there doing that? I can almost guarantee you one thing. Every catastrophe of human character is first preceded by an evil line of thinking. It doesn't just happen. And that bitterness takes root. And it starts to draw nutrients away from the good plant, away from the fruits of the Spirit. And all of a sudden, those fruits and the good tree and the good vine, they start to shrink and they start to shrivel and they start to dry out. And this horrible, shallow-rooted seed of bitterness has grown up into a breathtaking weed that just sucks the life. And eventually, it creates anger and wrath and malice and evil speakings and clamorings and everyone's against me and I don't want nothing to do with those people and why in the world some of the people that have said the most hurtful and nasty things to me were Christians that were just out of sorts and full of bitterness you see that in somebody it's not listen it's not them talking it's the bitterness talking and then you get mad at them and I guess you could say rightfully so unless you can see past their condition and realize that If only they could acknowledge the truth about themselves, then they could get out of the snare of the devil.
You see that? Bitterness, it makes us act in funny ways. You see a flaw in somebody's character? You see somebody acting out of sorts? What is that? Some kind of bitterness in their life. Something's picked up on them. They're seeing, they're looking at somebody a certain way. They just, and you know what? It can happen that fast. That's why he tells us to diligently look for it. Because it can just creep up. A situation happened and all of a sudden you're like, okay, I got it. You talk yourself down off the cliff. Hey, no big deal. And then you see them and they're out having a good time. You're like, how in the world could they be out having a good time and I'm sitting here dying the death of a thousand cuts because of what they said. And then all of a sudden that root starts to come up again. You know what you got to do? Yank it out. Yank it out. Listen, this is a lot deeper than I don't cuss and I don't chew and I don't smoke. I don't hang out with them that do. You know, this is stuff that I can't see on the outside. This is stuff that you can bury. But I can tell you this, the further you try to bury it, the worse it'll be when it sprouts. Amen. You say, how do you know that? Because the verse told us that when the root comes in, it says many are defiled. You think it just affects you. It doesn't just affect you. It affects everybody around you. Suppose you get bitter and leave church. Who do you think that, who do you think that affects? Well, that's just me. What about your wife? What about your husband? You know how many, you know how many uh, uh, little, either husbands or wives I've seen come to church and, they're, and, they're, and they're, uh, their counterpart or their spouse doesn't want to come to church anymore because they got offended, they got hurt, and they got bitter? I got a buddy up in New York right now. And uh, his wife uh, and I went to high school together. Me and him went to high school together and um, <clears throat> uh, got saved around the same time growing up. And uh, his wife, uh, for the longest time, uh, she actually moved to Indiana. And we were teaching down there and, and came to church down there for a while and uh, moved back up to New York. And uh, he stopped going to church. And she tried to do everything she could to keep those kids in church, had two kids, and she's trying to keep them in church and... I'd go up there and visit and preach a meeting or something. I'd go have dinner with him or go out over to his house. And I'd say, hey, man, how's it going? And he'd just act normal. He said, I just ain't going back to church. I ain't going back to church. I called him up two weeks ago. I said, man, I haven't talked to you in a few years. How you doing? He says, almost got the divorce finalized. I said, still not in church. He says, no, I want nothing to do with it. You know what? Kids are going to a Catholic high school. His wife's not in church anymore. Kids aren't growing up in church. You know what the problem was? He got bitter. He got bitter at the leadership in the church. And you know what the sad part about it is? If I'm being 100% honest, I understand why he got bitter at the leadership of the church. But guess what? Even if somebody's wrong, it doesn't give you the right to get bitter. How about that? You say, they're wrong. They may be. It still doesn't give you the right to get bitter. Because nobody has any position between you and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's move on here and I'll, I'll finish up. The characteristics of bitterness. You say, what is the cause of bitterness? What causes it? That's what we always want to know, right? What is, what is the thing that causes people to get bitter? You know the passage tells us exactly what it is? Look back in verse number 15. He tells us to look diligently. 
right? But then look what he says here. Lest any man fail of the grace of God. You want to know when bitterness springs up? Is when you lack grace. You say, explain yourself. Okay, let's go a little further in the passage here. Look in verse, uh, look in verse number 19. <clears throat> Start in verse 18. For ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of, the, of words, which uh, voice they that heard uh, entreated that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure that which was commanded. And if so much as beast touched the mountain, it shall be stoned and thrust through with a dart. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. You ever... Just kind of like figure out why in the world he said that in a, in a passage that he's talking about bitterness. He says, you did not have to get God's word like Moses did. Shaking in your boots on the top of a mountain where the thing was on fire and blackened the stones. And, if, a, and if, a, if, if anybody approached the mountain, they would get zapped by lightning and die. And if, a, and if a, just an animal were to approach the base of that mountain, they'd be thrust through with a dart. And Moses himself, who communed with God directly, said, guess what? It is terrible, exceedingly fearful, and he was quaking in his boots. Verse 22, but ye, ye are come to Mount Sinai under the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable company of angels, and to the, look at this, verse 23, and to the general assembly and church of the firstborn. You see, there were people that had to get a hold of God. You say, I wish I could be back in the Old Testament when God thundered from heaven. Are you sure about that? I don't think I do. I think I'd rather just be able to sit on my couch and read my Bible. Right? I have to worry about nobody getting zapped. I don't have to worry about my dogs getting thrust through with a dart. None of that stuff. Although sometimes I wish they would get thrust through by a dart. They drive me crazy. But you don't have to approach God like that. And he's giving you a compare and contrast here. And look at what he continues to say. Verse 24, and to Jesus... You didn't have to go through the Mount Sinai and the fire and the, and, the, and, the, and the loud thunderings. He says, And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not, who refused him that spake on earth? Much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Amen. You say, look at this. Verse... Uh, I'll just finish it out. Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth and now hath promised saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things which are shaken as of things that are made that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Look here in verse 28. Wherefore, because you didn't have to get a hold of God like that. You know what? You know what they called the church in the wilderness? That ecclesia? It's the church in the wilderness. A called out assembly. It's a picture of you and I. You didn't have to go through that. You have it so much easier than they do. And so he says, how in the world do you keep from getting bitterness? What is it that causes bitterness? He says it's a lack of grace. So what does he ask for in verse 28? Wherefore we, receive, uh, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. Whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence 
and godly fear. You want to know what it is, folks? It's when we, as a church, dealing with one another, we don't have to sit in our tents waiting for Moses to come off a mount and quake in our boots and hope that the, that the, the blood on the doorpost and, and, and everything else is, is, is good enough for the, for the removal of our sins and for the Lord to pass over us. We don't have to worry about all that. We don't have to worry about walking through the wilderness and just waiting for that, that, that ark to you know, come up or the, the, and move around and like lead us through the wilderness. We don't have to worry about the bitter waters of Mara. We don't have to worry about you know, the giants in the land and all that kind of stuff. We, we get to come into a church with one another. And you want to know what causes bitterness? Is when little things happen within the church and we fail to have grace with one another. And we fail to see the other side and we say, you know what? Maybe that person was just having a bad day. Maybe there's something going on in that person's life and maybe I was the backstop that got hit with the brunt of that. And you know what? If I could be mature enough to take it, better me than some weaker Christian that's going to get out of church because of it. You know what? Suffer myself to be defrauded because after all, what's a little bit of money? That one hit like a lead balloon. Amen. <laughs> you know what? If someone's going to go off half-cocked, I might as well do it on me. Sometimes we don't think like that. Amen. Sometimes we fail to have grace with other people. And when we fail to have grace... We then naturally lift ourselves up as if we deserve better. Right? And when you lift yourself up as if you deserve better, then you expect better things. And when somebody doesn't treat you the way you think you should be treated, you get bitter. And you get upset. And you get your nose out of joint. And then schisms happen in the body. And this person doesn't want to talk with this person. And this person can't really go over there. And I don't want to approach this person. And da, 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 da. It's when we fail to have grace with one another. It's when bitterness takes root. And thereby many are defiled. You ever been in a church that's got bitter people in it? And then new people come in and they say, they're picking up on the non-spoken cues. And they're like, oh, guess I don't sit over there. Right? Somebody walks in the door. Good to see you. I don't think it was good to see me. Right? And then everyone's like, church isn't growing. Why? Maybe it's because you're bitter. And it oozes off of you. And you don't think anybody can see it but it emanates from you like, a, like an odor of something rotting behind the walls that nobody can pinpoint. And all of a sudden, somebody turns a certain way and it's just, you just get a whiff of it. You're like, what was that? You're looking at your kids. You're like, what was that? <laughs> you're like, not me. <laughs> you're like, not in church. <laughs> it's like your bitterness, man. Nobody can tell. Oh, they can tell. They can tell. Say, all right, if that causes it, what cures it? I got great news for you. <laughs> the same thing that causes it is the same thing that cures it. Amen. You say, what cures bitterness? Get more grace. 
Having more grace with your brethren. Having more grace with your wife. Having more grace with your kids. Having more grace with younger Christians that don't know any better. Having more grace with people that are just trying to get through life. Having more grace with people that maybe they're doing stuff that you wouldn't do, but it doesn't matter because it's not you. Having grace with people. Well, how in the world? The Bible tells us to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You say, he tells us we don't live by the law of Moses anymore. Listen, we live by the law of Christ, which supersedes the law of Moses, which goes further than the law of God. You say, what is the law of Christ? Love thy neighbor as thyself. You say, how in the world do I get more grace? You get closer to Jesus. What happens when you get closer to Jesus? Well, the book of James tells us the answer. In James chapter number 4, verse 6, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. You say, Brother Joe, I think I can see some areas in my life where I'm bitter. Okay? You need more grace. You've made the fallacy that Paul warns about over three times in his writings, and that is simply this, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. He tells us time and time again to think of others, uh, esteem others better than yourself. Right? You say, you know what you need tonight? You need some more grace. You say, how do you do that? He resists the proud, but he'll give you grace if you get humble. And say, you know what, Lord? I don't deserve the least of your tender mercies. Lord, if everybody in the church turns their backs on me and starts talking bad about me, what I got in salvation was worth every bit of affliction I have to endure from the brethren. I don't care what someone says to me. I don't care how somebody treats me because I am at my best an unprofitable servant. And I'm not here for me. I'm here for you. As was spoken this morning, it ain't about you. It's always been about Him. You say, I need some more grace. You know what you need to do? Get a little lower. Lord, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve a great reputation. I don't deserve, I'm not supposed to be known as some great thing. I'm not, Lord, I don't care if someone says something bad. Maybe they were just having a bad day. You know, may Lord, you know, maybe they knew they were wrong. You know what? I'll just give them a pass on this one, Lord, you know, because it's not worth it for me. Why in the world would I get all bitter about this? You know what, Lord, I need some help. Lord, I'm nothing. Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Give me some grace. Father, give me some grace. Bitterness will kill you faster than anything that I can see on the outside. And if you've got bitterness in your heart tonight, it ain't just affecting you. It'll affect your marriage. It'll affect your kids. It'll affect everybody that's watching you. It'll affect your unsaved family members that are watching your life. It'll affect everybody at work that's watching you. The more bitter you get, the more people get defiled. And Christian, and here today, if we're going to make it to the end of this thing, and I hope it's close, I don't want to go out with roots of bitterness just sucking all the joy and fruit out of my life. I need to get lower and not think of myself more highly than I ought to think. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for tonight. Lord, I thank you for the attentiveness of your people. Father, I pray that tonight, Lord, you would help some folks. 
Because, Lord, we're all guilty of this. Father, we get to the place, Lord, where we're not gracious with people, where we think we know better than somebody else. And just because we're right, Lord, we think that we have the ability to get bitter or hold a grudge or get critical or to be impatient. And, Father, that's just not the case. Father, I pray tonight that you'd help us as a church that when people come in, Lord, they don't feel that. There's not that subtle smell of bitterness that just seems to turn up their nose. But, Father, may we have a place that in true communion and fellowship, we look to you, Father, to help us. And may it come out in the folks that come to church here and may other people that come in see it. And I pray, Lord, that you'd have your will and your way now in this invitation. And we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen.